Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey everybody, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. For all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. We've got the gear, we've got the knowledge, we've got the passion. You know, here we're moving uh, right through summer and, um, you know, in some of the states, Kentucky in the south, um, some of the states out west, Delaware in the east, deer season is going to open um, right at the beginning of September. So we're getting pretty close uh, to the time of the year where archers are really getting excited. And I'm really excited to have two special guests on today. Um, I want to welcome uh, Randy Ferguson. He is the executive director of Hunters Sharing the Harvest in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Randy. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to come on with you. Thank you. And Matt Simcox, the manager of Hunters for the Hungry, which is part of the Tennessee Wildlife Federation in Tennessee. Matt, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And we're going to talk about something that's really important, not just in the hunting community, but in every community uh, across the country. And that's helping to uh, feed people who suffer from food insecurity, people in need who are, uh, maybe don't know where their next meal is coming from. I think a lot of times, you know, as, as bow hunters, as hunters, when you think of the ways that you can give back is getting young people involved in the, in the sport of hunting, the, the sport of bow hunting, uh, or also supporting your local conservation groups. But there's another way you can really have an impact uh, across your area, across your region, is that's by donating a deer to one of the uh, venison donation programs. And uh, gentlemen, I'm I'm really thrilled to to have you both on. And full disclosure, as Randy knows, I'm actually a, a volunteer coordinator for my local county because I believe so strongly in these venison donation programs. But uh, let's start off, Darren. I'm I'm going to have you start off, uh, Matt. Talk about like I think when you think of donating a deer. It seemed both simple and intimidating because how do you do that? How do you donate a deer? But talk about how easy that really is. If somebody harvests a deer and they want to help somebody in need. I get that a lot. Like I get, I ask, I'll go to events and I'll be talking to hunters and I'll ask them if they've heard of Hunters for the Hungry. And they say, yeah, I've heard of it, but I don't know how to get involved or what I even need to do. And and I always tell them it's the simplest thing. It's, I mean, it's as easy as pulling a trigger. Uh, that's it. Once once you're out there hunting and you harvest a deer and, uh, you know, if your freezer's already full or even if you just don't eat the meat yourself or your family has doesn't have a need for it, uh, 168 people will definitely have the need for it. And that's how many deer, uh, how many people one deer can provide food for in Tennessee. But going back to your question, uh, we have our list of processors on, on our website. You can access it. Uh, on your mobile device, just like Pennsylvania. And all you have to do is drop, drive up to one of these processors and say, Hey, I'd like to donate a deer to hunters for the hungry. That's it. Uh, you'll fill out a, a, a little form uh, recognizing your uh, donation and, and you're on your way. I, I guess I should ask you, how about the, the cost? Usually if you take a, get a deer and you take it to a processor, it could be well over a hundred dollars, but how about for one of these programs? Well, I I know here in uh, and Pennsylvania, it's free of charge. We raise the money all year long so that hunters don't have to do anything. They just drop that deer off. Uh, they get told thank you by the processor, and they're on their way. 
Yeah, and I think that's so important. A lot of the states have moved towards that to help make it easier than ever um, to support the program and get the the food into people's hands. And uh, Randy, you and I have known each other for a couple of years now, and Pennsylvania has a um, an incredible program. And I was surprised last year. I think you had a record number of deer donated. But but talk a little bit about um, how the program works in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Hunter Sharing the Harvest in Pennsylvania is run very similarly to what Matt's doing down there in Tennessee. So we've got a, a program here where we make it as easy as possible for the hunter to be able to donate a deer uh, to those that are hungry in their community. We've been doing it since 1991. We were one of the first programs like this in the country. Um, Matt's even been up here once or twice over the years, long before my time in this in this particular role. But but basically to spend a little time with John Plowman, my predecessor and, and one of the co-founders of this organization, just to to kind of learn what we do here in Pennsylvania. And uh, we kind of started this model where we make sure that processors get paid, because as Matt said, we want to make this process very easy for hunters to donate deer. So in Pennsylvania, for many years, we had, and you'll remember this, Mark, we had what we called a copay. And it was a $15 ask that we had of the hunter when you would donate a deer at one of our participating processors. And that $15 that we would ask the hunter to donate was basically uh, the majority of the funding that we were building at that point to then reimburse the processors for, uh, for their services. And it's been about 10 years now, maybe not quite 10 years since we've been able to eliminate that $15 copay. And that was really thanks to the fact that we had tremendous support uh, from the oil and gas industry here in Pennsylvania that really stepped up to sponsor our program. And to a large extent, that group said, we want to be responsible for being able to say to the hunters, you no longer have a financial commitment in this. You've already done your good by deciding to donate a deer. And so they stepped up in big in big numbers, obviously, to help to help fund that so that we could get rid of that re or that copay. And then at the same time, we were increasing funding from other sponsors and grants, granting organizations. We get support from the Game Commission. We get tremendous support from the Department of Agriculture, too. And all of this comes together to help us defray the cost that we would have to process all of these hundreds of thousands of pounds of venison each year. Now, do you, do you, I don't know if you know this, but did you see an increase in donations when that copay was eliminated? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was just looking through our numbers uh, last week just to kind of see over the time, uh, over the period of time, how those numbers have spiked. And yeah, back in, I want to say it was 14 or 15, somewhere in there where the, when that copay was eliminated, uh, we spiked up from somewhere around 80,000 to just over 100,000 that year. And that was the second time in the history of HSH that we had broken through the 100,000 pound threshold. We had done it once before back in, uh, I believe, 2007. And then again, as soon as that copay left, we we noticed about a 20 to 25,000 pound increase that following year. So I think it definitely made an impact. And, you know, it's one of those things that kind of makes sense if you think about it. A hunter is being very generous by donating a deer. And the vast majority of them also weren't hesitating to chip in that $15 copay, but there was probably a certain amount of, uh, of thought process there that said, you know, you know, why do I also have to chip in some money here? I'm donating this deer. Uh, and so when we were able to, to get rid of that copay, it really changed things for us. Yeah, no, and, and it, like I said, these are tremendous programs. And and while we're talking, I do want to mention getting information on these programs is super easy. Uh, both organizations, 
um, have websites that have lists of processors. You have, I'm assuming Tennessee is like Pennsylvania, where you have volunteer coordinators on the ground. If you if you need to get information at a local level, and all that's on the website. Um, but it's really easy to donate a deer to get started. You said take it to the processor in Tennessee, take it to the processor in, Pens processor in Pennsylvania. But uh, Matt, what happens after that? Like, so you take it to a processor. Usually, when you get a deer, you go and pick it up. Then, how does this meat then get to the say the the church pantries, the shelters, and the food banks. Yeah, you know, when it comes to processors, and I think this is a nationwide thing, um, if not all across the globe, uh, freezer space is key to these guys. So when whenever a processor gets, say, um, a couple hundred pounds ready to go, and we provide freezers too. We have little chest freezers uh, some of them use those. They fill up pretty quick. Some of them don't use those and they or they they use both their personal freezer and their chest freezer. But once they get full, they will either call me directly and say, hey, I'm ready for a pickup. And then I'll contact uh, the the hunger relief agency that's next in line to get it. Each county has um, at least one or more that we kind of rotate giving to. And I'll give them like three days to pick it up. Uh, that's mm -hmm. fair. If if they can't pick it up in three days, we just go to the next one. And uh, we we kind of have our loyalty to, to these processors because without them, we don't have a program. And if they don't have room, they're going to quit taking hunters for the hungry deer or at least slow down so that they can fill their customer deer in their freezers. So, so most of the processors now, though, unless they're new, uh, they've got that hunger relief agency on speed dial. They'll call directly, say, hey, we're ready for a pickup. If they have any issue, then they'll call me. But unless it's a new first year processor, I really don't have an issue with that at all because these guys, they know what's going on. They're, they know how to get that meat moved. No, awesome. And, and Randy, I'm, I'm assuming it's similar in Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm guessing you work with a lot of different food banks. So talk a little bit about the relationships that you have with the, the food banks and the shelters and thing and how important that is to move this food along the chain. Yeah, it's it's really it's really astounding when you really start to look at the effect that a program like this has on on those who are food insecure within your state. And, you know, uh, as I said, I coordinated I was a volunteer coordinator for Mercer and Crawford County for many years. And so I kind of had that kind of tunnel vision, a sort of a limited perspective of exactly what the good was doing. I mean, I could see it here in Mercer County, especially where I live, uh, when we would distribute food to Good Shepherd Center or something like that nearby. And, and you kind of got a snapshot. But until I got into this position and really had the opportunity to start interacting with people at the regional food banks and at the local soup kitchens where they're feeding sometimes a few hundred people at a time, and when a couple hundred pounds of venison has just rolled in there a day or two before and how people just clamor to be able to come get that good protein source, it's just so tremendously important. And the food bank system really appreciates a program like this because they typically receive things like canned goods. They get dry goods. Uh, a lot of times some maybe produce, excess produce they're able to get from grocery stores and things like that. But to come across good quality protein sources, especially 
especially a good red meat or a or a uh, white meat like chicken and so forth. All of those things are very precious commodities at the food bank level. So when they have an opportunity to receive this venison from our programs, it's just they typically, like Matt said, they come running. They, we don't have to wait very long. Uh, to have venison picked up. And, and we do things sort of similar here in Pennsylvania. We've got about 100 processors around the state that uh, that collaborate with us. And when they have venison ready, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to call the local food pantry or regional food bank and let them know, who will then send someone to come pick up whatever venison they've got, or they'll call their local county coordinator and let that person kind of run the interference. Sometimes some of these folks, and you've you've done this, Mark, for quite a few years for us, uh, where you'll show up at that processor and pick up a few hundred pounds, and then maybe you'll go out and give a hundred to this organization and a hundred to this one and a hundred to that one, just to make sure we've got good distribution throughout that service area. So it's just tremendously important. And we can talk a little bit more as we go on here about some of the numbers and just what that true impact really is across the state and across the country when you look at all of these organizations. Yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to revisit that in a minute or two. But I want to talk about, because we've talked about this different steps in the process, but um, these are nonprofit organizations. So they probably, you probably have limited budgets, you have limited resources. What are the different ways a person can make a difference in helping a venison donation program, whether it's serving as a volunteer or making it, there must be a variety of ways people can lend a hand. And I'd love to hear from both of you, because you might have different opportunities in both states. Yeah, I will say here here in in Pennsylvania we have uh, a number of different opportunities for people to help out. One of uh -huh. which is uh, the county coordinator uh, position. That's something that's very important to us because, quite frankly, and it's the same in a lot of the, a lot of the states where we have a program like this. I'm the only paid employee of this organization, but yet we've got this tremendous kind of volunteer boots on the ground workforce of county coordinators, and I call them county coordinators. We really kind of refer them to it as area coordinators because some folks are working a couple different counties but but really they're the folks that have that kind of passion for the mission they've got some good interpersonal skills they're usually good communicators so they're going to be comfortable going to the county fair or going to the local sportsmen's association and talking to that group about supporting the organization maybe with a sponsorship or even just to encourage people to understand what the program is all about so our volunteer coordinators are, are a huge asset to this organization and then obviously as any nonprofit organization, and especially as our uh, as our mission grows, our fundraising responsibility becomes greater and greater every year. Because obviously, as as we keep breaking these records for venison donation, that means we're also breaking our own new budgetary records when it comes to expenses each year. So, uh, so to be able to have support from sponsors in industry and organizations that feel a uh, a complementary kind of mission to what we're doing that want to support us, whether they're from the hunting community per se or not, uh, that's very important. We're always out there trying to write grants, and so we're always looking for support from organizations that have funding to offer. Uh, and then from there, it's just folks that may or may not even be hunters, but like what we're doing and appreciate this type of mission can donate five, 10, $25, whatever's comfortable. All of that money really adds up over the course of a year to help us defray these costs because uh, I'm sure Matt will tell you too. These are the type of things that keep us awake at night is just worrying about you know, how we continue to fund these, these organizations. And we've been very blessed here in Pennsylvania as, as he has down there 
uh, with a lot of support, but it's what you're concerned with every single day when you know you need to grow a mission and that means grow funding support as well. So thank you for that. And Matt, you mentioned before we actually started the podcast that you had a record uh, number of donations this year. but I, I think with with the the deer donations comes those increasing costs. you do you have the same challenges down where you live in Tennessee where you need to continue to raise money to support the program so you can feed more people? And do you have a need for volunteers throughout the state and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if you were to ask almost any state what their biggest challenge is, it's fundraising because, um, you know, we've got the hunters. Yeah, we need more hunters. We need more processors. But um, all that hinges on the funding. And without the funding, it's hard to recruit a new processor and say, you know, unfortunately, we don't have any funds for you, but hopefully the hunters will chip in and pay. That just doesn't work. And that's not how we want to, to run the program. So um, we set a processing budget every year. Last year, we actually went over budget, but we had the mindset about four years ago, we had a goal that we will never turn a hunter away from donating a deer free of charge. So with that in the back of my mind, I I kind of know every year how many deer a processor is going to get donated. So I can kind of allocate on paper which processor is going to need the, the more funding. We have some that do over 200 deer and we have some that do five deer. So I know how to, to do that. But um, yeah, we're mostly privately funded through grants and everything that Randy uh -huh. mentioned. Uh, we get license checkoff dollars. If you're buying your new hunting license for the year, uh, you can make a contribution uh, at that time. All 100% of those funds come back to this program. Uh, we, gosh, I would say six years ago or so, I. I uh, came up with these deer coins and I, I wish I had one to, to show, but it's basically uh -huh. a gift certificate for a prepaid donated deer. Mm -hmm. At the time we were having uh, hunting clubs purchase 10 of them to leave at their, their lodge and anybody that stays there, if they wanted to donate it, they would just take that deer coin to a processor. The processor would keep up with that coin. And when they send in for reimbursement, we had a separate pot of funds to to take that out of and and we usually sell three to four thousand dollars worth of those deer coins every year and that's some people uh, they don't even redeem them they save them or collect them and they know that the, their funds of the you know purchasing that is going to a good cause and uh and if they hunt or not that's that's totally fine so we all try to be creative with fundraising um I, when it comes to, uh, you know, sp speaking events where there may be a group full of people, when I ask who all deer hunts, no one raises their hand. And I'm like, well, this is kind of awkward. But um, <laughs> what I say is, hey, you live in Tennessee, you may not deer hunt, but I guarantee you know someone that does. Uh, please just share what we're doing to, to people. And so we try to spread it word of mouth. We try to grow the program. We also re-engage with past donors because if we can get, for example, we have a little over 2,000 individual donors that donate one or more deer a year. Uh, if we can get those guys to uh, 
to agree on donating an extra deer on top of what they did last year, we just doubled our program instantly. No, so, and I, I've looked at the numbers. Um, we have we have around uh, 60% of repeat donors and about 40% new hunters every year that are donating for the first time. That 60% uh, repeat is, is pretty impressive figure. I didn't think it would be that high. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that's a good uh, point to ask both of you. You know, we are a bow hunting podcast. A lot of people that listen to us also will firearm hunt and things like that. But like, I'm guessing that you, you know, with bow seasons being fairly long in, in both of your states, um, that you probably get good contributions from bow hunters. Do any of, do either of you, uh, Randy, maybe, do you have any statistics as far as maybe what percent of your donations actually come from archery hunters? Because Pennsylvania has 300,000 plus archery hunters. Right, right. Yeah, we have what I call some fuzzy statistics when it comes uh -huh. to uh, this, but it actually does, it does help us put the numbers in perspective. So, for instance, last year, we had our all-time record high season of donations. We had 235,532 pounds of venison that were donated around the state, and that was from a total of 6,201 deer. So what we do, and, and Matt referenced this when he was talking about their process down in Tennessee, when you take your deer to the uh, participating processor, you're going to fill out a donor receipt. It's a three-part receipt where we're going to capture your contact information because we want to be able to reach out to you throughout the year. Thank you for your donation. Keep you in communication with what's going on with the organization. But then we also try and capture a little bit of data in there that's helpful to us from the harvest standpoint. So what we'll do is we'll ask if the deer was harvested during archery season, whether it was during uh, uh, firearm season. And then we'll also connect, collect information like, was it from a, a DMAP harvest or a red tag harvest, or were you a game warden that dispatched a deer or something like that? So we wanna capture as much of that information as possible. Now, the only breakdown to that is the data is only as good as what we get reported on those donor receipts. So, you know, sometimes folks just aren't all that excited about giving a lot of information. They're skeptical about maybe where this information is being shared and so forth. So what happens is at the end of the season, I get a breakdown, a spreadsheet of all of those individual donors. And the way that shakes out this past year out of those 6,000 some deer we had about 16 to 1800 that we could specifically identify uh, were harvested by firearms. The really encouraging thing is at the same time, we had about, I think it was 12 to 1300 that were identified as archery harvest. So when you think about that, and, and historically in the past, it was much heavier on the firearm side, yeah. less on the archery side, but the, the archery harvest and archery uh, donations have been going up exponentially here in PA. So between those two numbers, you if you're doing the math at home, you're only coming up with about 3,000 of our 6,000 deer. Well, that's because, again, a lot of people aren't, aren't giving us a lot of information on those donor receipts. Then we also have a huge component of donations throughout the state that are coming in from things like community herd reduction calls, where maybe uh, a local Pittsburgh suburb has a deer herd problem and they've got the USDA or someone coming in to help them manage a herd reduction effort there or the Pittsburgh International Airport where there alone we get almost 200 a deer just from airport herd reductions and, and we enter into agreements with that community where we split the cost 
of reimbursing the processor for those deer so that the community doesn't have to pay that full bill. So, so you've got a huge component of our numbers that are coming from those type of things. And believe it or not, those herd reductions around the state at different areas are right now contributing almost 20% of our donated deer around the state. So there's a lot of, that's why I say the numbers are a little fuzzy, but what we can see is the fact that archery donations have definitely increased over the years to the point where at least what's being reported on those donor receipts is actually approaching parity. But but you can you could really see like as archery's grown in popularity and that could partially be due to the crossbow in Pennsylvania. You're seeing more and more donations. And uh, Matt, have you followed a, a similar trend in Tennessee? Do you see a good number of deer coming in during the archery seasons? Now you probably have pretty lengthy gun seasons down there though. Well, we do, and a, a big part of the state, um, with when CWD was found uh, four years ago, uh-huh. basically hunters could use firearms during archery season to take these deer for testing and so forth. Um, so my numbers are kind of fuzzy as well. I think everyone has fuzzy numbers when it comes to uh, data that, that individuals are are providing so uh but we have around 15 to 17 percent of the deer that that we have donated come in during our archery only season so i have seen in the past 10 years uh archery deer are coming we're getting more archery deer and i mm-hmm. i solely believe it's because of uh allowing crossbows now it's you know, archery season is like the best kept season in Tennessee. Um, it's it's the best time to hunt. And now that people can take a kid with them and sit in a ground blind with a, a crossbow, yep. uh, we're, we're seeing a, a huge increase of archery hunting in Tennessee, awareness of, of the, you know, the little secret it has gotten out. Um, so I think that has something to play with the increase over the last 10 years. You know, every year we have an increase and a big part of that, I think, is archery deer coming in. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing we probably want to touch on, we sort of skirted around it here, but, you know, you have the programs themselves and um, but the impact they're really having in the state. And by that, I mean, the first time and actually what prompted me to get involved in Hunter Sharing the Harvest was, uh, when I moved to the area I live now, I went to the local food food pantry at a local church. And while I was there, I was only there half an hour, but I was surprised at the number of people that walked in. And then when uh, I was setting up this podcast, I, I saw on your website, Matt, that I believe it's like one in eight people in Tennessee and one in six kids suffer from potential food insecurity. Those numbers are astounding when you think about it. Uh, most people are very, you know, in good shape. They don't have to think about this, but there's a lot of people that need a, a hand. Can either of you speak to that? And maybe we'll start with you, Matt, since I threw those numbers out there. But it, uh, people needing a helping hand is actually bigger than a lot of people think, isn't it? Well, just this year, I was talking with one of the directors of a food bank in East Tennessee, and uh-huh. I just wanted to ask her about those stats, one in six and one in eight, food insecurity. What does that mean? And the first thing she said is those numbers are actually um, too conservative uh, or actually she said that it's more like one in three or one in four children. Um, when those the last time those numbers were calculated, it was when some COVID stimulus funds were coming in. And uh-huh. so that kind of bumped it up a little bit. But 
she said that it's it's uh, it's such a problem. And she said that food insecurity meant that these kids go to bed not knowing when or where they're going to get their next meal. Now, I've got three kids at home, and I couldn't imagine, even when I was a child, uh, having that thought. But it's a serious thing, and it's it's nationwide. Uh, I met with a food bank director down in, in Memphis uh, years ago, probably 12 years ago. We had just gotten a big grant. We were going to have an influx of, of venison coming into that whole region, and I asked her, how much red meat, beef, red meat, did you have last year? And she went through her records and said, well, we only had 50 pounds. And I'm thinking, is that like a week, a day? She said, no, for the whole year, we had only 50 pounds of red meat. I said, well, you better move some boxes and make some space. That year, we gave them 13,500 pounds of venison. So the need is there. I mean, these guys, they they're get, they get, Randy mentioned it earlier, they get canned chicken, canned tuna, any yeah. fresh, we call fresh meat that they get is coming from a butcher shop or a grocery store that's out of date. So how fresh is that really? The venison that we're providing was living a week ago. <laughs> you, can't get, you can't get fresher than that. Yeah. And you've just touched on so many points that, that sort of explain why it's so crucial, because it's the need for helping people get lean, protein rich meat is, is, is a lot bigger than we think. And uh, Randy, I'm guessing it's similar in Pennsylvania. What are some of the stories you've heard over the years, first as a coordinator and now as running the whole program there? Yeah, it's really, it really, it's just a huge eye opener to me every day I do this job. So in Pennsylvania, we have over one and a half million people that would be considered food insecure, which essentially means you don't necessarily know where your next meal is coming yeah. from. Those numbers are absolutely tremendous when you think about it. Now, we're not quite at the, at the uh, ratios that they are in Tennessee, but uh, we still have a huge, huge need here in Pennsylvania. And the way we try to quantify uh, the the effect that we're having on that food insecurity is we use uh, the American Heart Association's recommendation of three ounces of lean red meat in a serving. So when you want to start talking about numbers, that 235,000 pounds of venison that was donated last season, that ends up contributing to about 2.3 million servings, individual servings, not meals, but servings of lean venison just in this past year. And when you look at the history of the organization, it's well over 10 million servings that have been served. And yet, you know, we're still barely making a dent when it comes to, to feeding the hungry, but we're, we're sure making a difference, you know, and, and when you start to, to look at that and you talk to the different food banks and and some of which may or may not be receiving venison from us there's over 5000 food pantries and and uh food resource centers around the commonwealth and so we know that we're not getting venison into every one of them we're doing our darndest but i got a call for instance last week from a a young lady who she and her sister started uh, a nonprofit organization they both live in new jersey but they mm -hmm. come to Philadelphia every other week with their ministry, and they go right out onto the streets feeding 
people right there in the heart of Philadelphia. And she had heard about our program, but she hadn't been able to get connected with any of the resources that would get her some venison. So we got some information from her and I promised to get out to our local processors right there around the Philadelphia area, surrounding area, to see if they can try to make sure that throughout this coming season that they divert some of that directly to her organization and let them pick it up. And she was just on top of the world because she could see she could just imagine right there the, the the change in their ministry that that's going to make for us this coming year or for them if we're able to even just get them a few hundred pounds of venison throughout the season. Yeah, and, and, and that is a tremendous story. And actually, I want to take a minute to thank the both of you and all your volunteers and the programs for what you do, because uh, most people don't hear about all this stuff. And it's a lot of work you have to do behind the scenes to make this all possible. And it's it's not easy. It's not low-hanging fruit. It's a lot of grinding it out to make a difference in people's lives. And like I said years ago, that's why I got involved in the program, because it's so important. Nobody should ever go to bed and not worry where the next meal is coming from, especially where we live uh right now in the 21st century and my guess is without anybody saying anything it's probably gotten a little tougher with all the prices of everything's gone up the past couple of years with inflation and stuff I'm, sh I'm sure we've seen another bump where it's gotten worse for families and for people and things like that you know i, I have to ask and i'd like to hear from both of you on this this question and, and we'll we'll stay with you randy and then we'll go to matt if there's one thing you wished more people and more hunters knew about the venison donation program what would it be be honest not to not to give the simple answer but it would literally just be to know about the organization because here's the thing for for us breaking records every year at the same time as I travel around the state and I and I'm somewhere in a community and and maybe it's after whatever official event I've been at and I'm speaking to someone at dinner that evening and I talk about what I do I'm going to get one of two results and it's just about equally it happens just about equally in these instances where I tell them what I do in the organization mm -hmm. I'm with, and I either get a blank stare because they've never heard of such a thing, venison donation program to begin with, or that Pennsylvania had one, or they might happen to be a hunter or someone who's actually known about us for years and has donated deer. But there's a tremendous education job that we have to do out there to talk about our mission because it's very easy to start thinking oh everybody knows about hunter sharing the harvest look how successful we are but at the same time when you look at the uh the harvest numbers in pennsylvania as compared to the donated deer numbers we're still looking at only about one one and a half approaching two percent of the total harvest that's being donated. So when I look at that, what I see is opportunity. I see tremendous opportunity for us to keep growing our mission because out of all of those deer that are being harvested, and especially in those years where we're able to attain a higher harvest by utilizing more bonus tags and so forth, I can see just the tremendous potential for our missions to expand just by letting more people know about what we do. So it's really just the basic education about the fact that we're here and that there's a way for people to help others by contributing in one way or another. Totally agree. And thank you. And, and Matt, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add to that, but I'm sure there are plenty of things you'd like people to know more about your program. Yeah, just how easy it is. Um, I mentioned that earlier. I think there's something floating around where hunters are intimidated and they just don't know how easy it actually is. I mean, um, and then the other thing, too, is, you know, we, we talked about the hunger. We talked about the numbers, the hungry people. Um, I try to 
to express that every deer that's donated is going to provide a lot of food, 168 servings. So, yeah. um, you know, if you were to, uh, in Tennessee, we, we love University of Tennessee football. Okay. We, we just, we love Tennessee football. Um, if you were to look at in the last 25 years, all the deer that, that have been donated to this program, you could literally feed every person at a home Tennessee football game away, you know, visitors coming, everything for a whole season. That's how many meals that this little program has provided. Uh, Randy's right. We, I don't know if we were on, on the air earlier when I mentioned this, but you know, in Tennessee, our percentage is around 2%, 2% of every deer harvested tagged in is being donated. Uh, what if we took that to 3%, 4%, 5%? Uh, 5% is my goal. And we have some counties that are hitting 8 9% in those counties. Then we have some that are, you know, 0 0.001. So that's how you can measure the growth and the success in each county. And so uh, word of mouth is number one, funding number two. Um it's easier to write a check. It's more fun to pull a trigger. So, uh, you know, I would say that that pretty much sums it up on, on the education, getting involved. Yeah. And, and I have to say everything you two gentlemen have talked about is, you know, this is a win, win, win program. You go hunting something you already love to do. And most of the people that listen to this podcast probably live in whitetail states where they have ample deer they could take one, two, some states, New Jersey, you get a right tag, you can take unlimited antlers deer. If you're a person that takes more than one deer a year for your family, make a difference this year by donating that. And you're going to be feeding so many people. It's such a great program. And if we could just grow in every state, as you said, Matt, one or 2%, the increase is going to be so sharp and you're going to help so many others out. The costs are minimal. You're out there hunting, having fun. You're really helping people who really have a need for good quality food. It's a tremendous program from top to bottom. And before we wrap up, if you could both just share quickly where people, what's the best way for people to learn more about your programs, what your website addresses are, and, and then we'll wrap up with the podcast. Matt, go ahead. First. Yeah, so uh, Tennessee Hunters for the Hungry, our website is uh, www.tnwf.org, tnwf.org. You can click on uh, Hunters for the Hungry and find all the information that you need about our program mm -hmm. on there. Thank you. Randy? In Pennsylvania, our website is www.sharedeer.org. So it's nice and simple. And just like Matt said, with their website, it's really the one-stop shop. It's got all the information you need to know. It's going to answer questions for you. It's going to give you contact information. It's going to let you know where your, your local participating processor is in the county where you live or the county where you hunt. It's going to tell you who your local coordinators are, how you can donate, all of that good stuff. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we really want people to, to make use of that to the best they can and, and, find a way that they can contribute to this organization, whether it be monetarily, whether it be with a deer, whether it be to volunteer, um, but we'd like to hear from you and find a way for you to be able to help us with our mission. 
Yeah, well, 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 thank you so much for that. Good luck with your coming deer season, which we're going to get underway in a month or just two months, depending where you're at. And uh, everybody who's listening here on the podcast, we'll see you next time. So thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Take care, Matt. Yep, see you, Randy. <laughs> Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com. <laughs>